Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trond Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurize.org store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Taimu, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. This is fun. We speak a lot. We speak every week and uh, now we'll speak on, uh, on the air. Yeah, I'm excited to see what topics we cover in this. All right, Timer. So you're a Stanford graduate student right now, um, but you've done so many exciting things. I want to start with uh, the fact that you grew up in Lahore, Pakistan. So that's the second largest city, right? And uh, a yes. population of 13, a staggering 13 million. That's a lot of people. How was it's that? A, it is a very uh, packed city, but you'll be surprised how like everyone knows everyone. <laughs> In Lahore. It's one of those things where you always run into people and you're always just one degree removed. So it's both big and small uh, at the same time. That is a fantastic story. I don't know if I believe it, but uh, if you're sticking to it. But also the province of Punjab is called the land of five waters. You guys have five rivers coming in there. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I think it's been a very important sort of feature of shaping the civilization of the area. And it's very sort of uh, a very fertile land. It's big on agricultural production. I think of not just the economy, but the culture also revolves around like folk tales and songs and just sort of cultural practices that come from the concept of having five rivers. Well, we'll also talk a little bit about geopolitics. And I know the last fact I was going to mention about Punjab is it's a region with a long-standing history of warfare. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's because you guys are litigious, but it certainly is because you're in a strategic kind of, I guess, the northwestern frontier of the Indian subcontinent. A lot of people wanted to cross over there or, I don't know, liked these five rivers. But uh, it's been a very contested region, to be fair. 
Yeah, it has. I think also it reflects on how the people of the Punjab from both India and Pakistan are very sort of known for being very energetic, very loud, very boisterous as as people both in good ways and bad ways. So I think that comes across pretty well. Interesting. Well, well, we'll we'll go to you and your newsletter and all the exciting things that you're thinking about at the moment. But I want just for a second to acknowledge that you know in your background, so you've been a consultant at McKinsey. You have been a researcher at uh, a center for economic research in Pakistan, uh, working on agricultural development. That's exciting. But you've also had a stint in Qatar, and you attended uh, or got your bachelor's there on uh, in uh, foreign service. So how you know how come you got so international all of a sudden? So Lahore to the world, literally traveling, crossing the world over this last ten years. How did that happen? Um, yeah, I think it was just when I was applying for colleges, the concept of these you know, top American universities opening their campuses in Qatar was becoming more and more popular. Uh, I knew a few people who had gone to these universities, and it just seemed like a very good mixture of having that you know high quality of American higher education, but also being sort of you know closer to home in a very different culture. A lot of mixing, matching how these universities operate, uh, and I personally think I had a wonderful time just sort of enjoying this crossing between you know again very high quality education but all the sort of multifaceted diversity uh oriented stuff that came along with it so you know small class sizes people from all parts of the world discussing the same topics as you work in the u.s campus for example but i don't know it just like felt as if it would be a new and exciting thing i actually turned out to be a great experience like i would not have changed it for anything hmm. I want to get to your newsletter in a second, but before that, you're at Stanford and you're taking all kinds of classes. Uh, how has that experience been for you? Um, yeah, it's been great. I think coming to Stanford was you. The one thing you hear about Stanford, maybe the only thing you hear about Stanford before coming, is about entrepreneurship. Start your business. Everyone has to become a you know a serial entrepreneur, millionaire out of this experience. But I think there's just so much sort of academic, good academic work that also happens. Uh, and I've been sort of very privileged to have access to like those courses and those people working on like energy, electricity specifically, um, you know, people who form the the backbone of so much that eventually becomes either businesses or policies and so on. So it's been a very good experience. That combined with just being in California is uh, is a wonderful opportunity. You know, it's interesting what you're saying because the headline for Stanford is entrepreneurship. But if you do look a little under the hood, of course, it has a great school of international uh, studied and institute, uh, the Freeman Spogli Institute, and and obviously, like you said, you know, real uh, re- real assets and, and and you know, studying things that we'll talk about in a second, things that matter, material assets that are relevant to the economy, and uh, you know, uh, things that you had studied in the fa- past re- related to production and, and manufacturing and, and many other things, but also finance, which is, I guess, where we're going to start. So you write this uh, newsletter called and Substack called Fictitious Capital. And I wanted you perhaps to just uh, go to that uh, quickly because it's a term that not everybody understands. It's kind of a fun term, fictitious capital. It sort of sounds like you're 
kind of making some stuff up here, but this is a historical term. Why don't we start there? And then I have a bunch of questions along some of the things you, you have been writing in your newsletter that, that really go to the core of what's happening in, in, in finance, uh, with the debt crisis, and, and also in geopolitics. Yeah, I think I think that's the right way to report. Fictitious capital is just a very fun sounding word. <laughs> uh, and I think that's partially why I picked it as the name of the newsletter. It just seemed like, you know, it's fun, it's quirky, it's, it gives off an obvious meaning. Uh, but there's, as you said, a lot of intellectual, historical sort of context with the word as well, like with the phrase as well. And I think, so the phrase comes from Marx, um, comes from volume three of Marx. Uh, of volume three of Das Capital. And I think the the phrase in a sort of core theoretical context means financial value that is sort of divorced from the real value that it's supposed to represent. So, you know, we think about finance, prices, value as sort of a representation of some social value that is underneath. So you think about prices of goods and materials, you know, houses and so on, so it's supposed to represent. Uh, the actual value. And I think fictitious capital is is when the value of something is divorced from reality. So you can think about like uh, financial derivatives, mortgage-backed securities, things like that, things that have sort of value in and of itself that is no longer running parallel to the real value of the assets. Um, and I think that becomes... It's actually quite intuitive if you think about it, especially in this sort of financialized era that we're in. You know, we're all, we're used to hearing about financial crises and speculation, and you know, housing market prices or stock prices going higher, and you know, things going bankrupt, even though a year ago they were like worth fifty billion or something. Um, so it seems quite intuitive, and I think we sort of don't fully understand how important or how dangerous that can be to the system. Um, I think that was a good time just because we've had so many scandals recently, you know, the FTX bankruptcy, you've had, you know, crypto coins that have either disappeared or gone down 95%, and, you know, these things were worth $50, 100000000000 billion like, you know, just a couple of years ago, and all of that value was just gone. And so, you know, what makes that happen? Yeah, and and so so in a very simple way, then fictitious capital is basically any kind of investment that you would think of as a financial investment on the markets, even just uh, bond stocks, derivatives, and and collateral uh, collateralized that debt obligations. So these more complex financial instruments, all of which are based on an expectation of future returns. That is, if you think about it, somewhat divorced from the real asset. But if you yeah. go back to Marx for a second, I mean, he had this whole labor uh, theory of value. So for him, I guess it was even different than that. It was just basically anything that was not labor was a problem for him, right? So the only real thing for him was labor, not even, so, you know, you're saying, okay, it, uh, you know, the financial value is sort of not related to an asset, but, you know, in the true Marxian sense, nothing is an asset unless there's labor going into it. So, so I guess he's more extreme than you here. Uh, well, I think Marx, when he talks about fictitious capital, he sort of tries to make this distinction between productive capital. I think he recognizes the fact that, you know, of course, labor is at the heart of creating value, but you need 
capital, which either can be you know nature, can be knowledge, can be machinery, and you also need financial capital in order to pull in resources. So he sort of classifies you know investments in manufacturing and research and science and whatever as like productive capital. But this fictitious capital is then, is then this sort of financialized sort of capital that doesn't complete the cycle of going back to being productive. And mm -hmm. so I think that framework of, okay, there is productive capital, there is something called productive investments, but then there's something called like fictitious capital, which is more speculative and just value for value's sake. I think that distinction becomes quite helpful in today's world. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's fictitious capital then for a moment. Um, the, if we want to just uh, kind of define another term that I think you feel at least is uh, is very central to this discussion, um, polycrisis is this other term that has started to appear. And and if we talk about crisis in capital at a very simple, you know, in a very simple manner, you know, we're talking about debt crisis or something, and it's it's kind of it could be restricted just to sort of a financial situation. But you, in your thinking, um, have joined this bandwagon of, of talking about polycrisis. What does polycrisis mean for you? And, and why is it important to you uh, when you start thinking about kind of the political economy? Yeah, I think polycrisis has become quite a popular term in mainstream discourse over the past year. I think Adam Tools, the historian who writes for Financial Times, has done a good job of sort of propagating this way of thinking. And I think it sort of represents the fact that today, as, as a system, as a society, we face sort of a, a very complex combination of macroscopic risks that are quite hard to sort of box down into, into, into sort of categories. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that there hasn't been a diversity or complexity of risks in previous epochs. It's just to say that at this specific moment, they're all sort of coming together in unprecedented, complex, and hard to sort of model or control ways. Um, you can think about, like, you know, there's all sort of financial stresses in the system. Uh, there's debt crises, there's the ecological crisis that is coming to the fore, you know, there's geopolitical risk coming to the system, there's social movements happening out that are causing all types of volatility and, and risk in the system. And so they're all sort of happening in the same moment. It's very hard to say, okay, this thing comes first and this is causing everything else. And I think that requires almost a different framing to the one we've had, especially for the past 50 years, where everything has been about, well, you know, economics at the center, it's about growth, it's about development, you know, that then brings democracy and peace and stuff like that. I think the situation is, is quite different for the crisis. It's just one potential framework of reorienting how we think about these multiple crises. Yeah, and you know, you and I over the last few months have been working on a further term that kind of tries to put an analytical uh, toolkit, I guess, on top of this polycrisis, namely kind of a cascading risk framework. But I don't know if we'll get there because we definitely now should dive into, I think what some of your very original thinking is around, which is, you know, how some of the very basic resources that are the cogs that constitute kind of the engine of, of this whole system we're talking about. So I want to I, I want to explore that for a minute because I know how passionate you are about energy, for example, and uh, raw materials and and things like manufacturing, which I also have been working on quite a bit over the last two three years. These are things that not all economists 
uh, I guess, talk about as much. Why do you feel the need to uh, explore both energy and sort of manufacturing uh, and, and sort of mater the material basis of all these sort of financial developments? Why is that so important to you? Yeah, I think this is where, again, this concept of fictitious capital becomes important because for me, how I think about it now is, you know, we have the system, you know, we're giving a house, for example, and the house is sort of the global system that we're getting and we have different rooms and you it's very compartmentalized, it makes sense to us. And I think fictitious capital then becomes this, which I now use in not in a financial sense, but almost in a, to represent fictitious knowledge capital, to represent, you know, uh, a misunderstanding of how the world works. That becomes this sort of froth between understanding, okay, we're given this house, but why is the house designed this way? What is the structural integrity of the house? You know, what is the land that's actually based on and what constraints or opportunities that presents? And, and I think it works fine when things are working fine. When there's nothing wrong with the house, you go along, you know, just doing your thing. But as soon as things start to fall apart, you have to know how that house was built in order to fix it or, you know, change it or whatever. And that, I think, led to that process of understanding, okay, what exact, exactly is or are the causes of causes, you know, what things come first. And I think energy, material things, uh, supply chains, manufacturing, all these things come first. They are constrained in, by so many external factors. These are not things that we can sort of change through discourse or through like shifting political systems. These are things that are, you know, are, are long-term trends, are, are driven by nature, driven by exogenous factors. And so I thought, and especially the fact that they were just not thought about for decades, you know, things were relatively fine. People were thinking about trade liberalization, financial liberalization, all of these things, because we had enough energy, energy was cheap. We had enough raw materials, everything, you know, we, inflation was not something we thought about and so on and so forth. And, and now I think all of those things are coming back to uh, being very important. You know, it, it does put you in this like engineering conception of the economy, which I guess is uh, contrasting with the way that uh, policymakers or politicians uh, see the world, right? Where it starts with uh, ideas and democracy, liberalism, you know, free markets. Mm -hmm. And then ob obviously the social economists are, you know, have historically jumped on that. And, you know, this is how markets are, are, are working and created. But you're saying that there's a material basis here that is so much more important and, and fundamental to, to, to the system. Doesn't that put you, though, a little bit dangerously close to kind of like technology or material determinism? I mean, if you're saying it determines the economy, isn't that a little bit too strong again? I think it's one of those ways where it's not as if um, where society is going is already determined. It's about okay, there are constraints to what we can do. That's one. And second, if we want to enact change, we need to look up, we need to think about changing this, what I call the base layer of society. So for example, if we want to decarbonize, if we want to change uh, or fight the ecological crisis, where should we be looking? We should not, everything else sort of, which is political or technocratic sort of is secondary. We should be thinking about how does that change the base layer of society? How does that change manufacturing and energy and, and you know trade and consumption and stuff like that? So I think it's about 
it's not deterministic, but it is the thing that causes change. And that is the layer that we should be talking about and figuring out how to change, basically. So, Timer, let's talk about this for a second, because the notion right now that we can and should immediately or as quickly as possible have this famous energy transition from fossil fuels to renewables, it's now gone from being kind of an environmental pitch to being the pitch. Even energy companies are at least participating in the pitching. They're not perhaps always putting their capital and true sort of engines behind the changes, although some are. You, in your thinking, this is not as simple as that. Um, give me some reasons why this transition is more complicated than it seems, having to do with, I guess, the material layer that, that, we're, that we're trying to replace. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, you know, if everyone starts seeing something, you should always question it. And I think decarbonization has reached this point where everyone is sort of on that bank back and it's, oh, this is a win-win situation. We can make a lot of money and solve the crisis and so on. And I think there are three risks to this problem. I think the first one is recognizing that we have never had an energy transition in human history. Um, we have consumed more and more in absolute terms of each energy resource that we've had throughout human history. So yeah, the, the percentage of what we've consumed has changed, but what matters for you know, development and progress is the units of energy consumed and that for all resources, for the most part, maybe coal has sort of leveled off or going down, going down a little bit, but has gone up throughout human history. So this is a first for our civilization to transition, which means to, to decrease the use of specific energy resources, in this case, fossil fuels in absolute terms is, is a first for human history. And the second point is recognizing that not all energy resources are the same. It's not to say, you know, qualitatively, which are better or worse, but just recognizing that fossil fuels have certain unique features in terms of density, access, storage, transportability, and so on, that have sort of allowed a certain type of human system to be built on top of them. And then to just say that, okay, we need to replace, you know, one megawatt from coal with one megawatt from solar is just not the same thing. Uh, you, you can and should do that, but just recognizing that solar looks very different in terms of, you know, how it's produced, land area, you know, uh, reliability, how the, you know, all those sort of systems that are built around it, it looks very different. So that's true. Recognizing different sources have different features, which then cascades into everything else. And the third thing is just recognizing the incredible amount of dependence, almost to a one-to-one -one relationship that we have with energy. So if energy is everything that we do, it is everything that creates order, prosperity, gives structure to our society. And so the scale and the difficulty of sort of changing something that is so deeply entrenched in our way of life is not as easy as just technocratic fixes and a lot of investment going into it. It is, it's like, it's like trying to change, rebuild your house while you're still living in a, in a house, for example. You know, it's a very hard proposition. And I don't think people are recognizing the scale of the challenges and things that can go wrong in doing that. So I, I, I want to I wanna believe that, uh, what you're saying, but I also think that it's a dangerous line to, to walk this argument because at some point you become an apologetic for the vested interests that have 
created the current economy, right? Mm. Um, at the other end of it, you know, you might become a degrowth economist that, you know, if you want to paraphrase some of those, they are all excited about turning the economy much smaller radically and fast. And that seems to me another recipe for disaster. So we'll get into degrowth in a second, but I, I want to go via the, the conception of money first. So, let, you know, please don't, let's not go too deep into degrowth, but mm-hmm. is it fair to say that, you know, yes, it's possible that uh, replacing energy forms is difficult, but it doesn't necessarily mean, does it, Timur, that a renewable economy has to be smaller? I mean, there's no, it's just that there are some friction costs here and it, it'll take a certain amount of time but I don't see that you have yet yet convinced me that it necessarily will become a smaller economy. Yeah, I think there there are two parts to this, and I think the first part is the the moment of transition, right? So I think in that part, I am quite confident about the fact that given the speed and the scale with which we need to reduce our fossil fuel consumption um, and the political economy around it. The only conceivable way to do it in the time that we have is to reduce consumption because of how strongly consumption is linked with energy consumption. Um, so in that sort of you know, 10, 15, 20, whatever that time period is, I think the fact that all of our climate models, even IPCC reports and so on, take growth as a given is a problem. Um, and it's just one of those things that we need to be cognizant about. It's not to say, okay, we have to you know, go back to where we were 200 years ago, but at least playing with the concept of what we look like to not just be constantly growing at an exponential rate as we have been. So I would say in the moment of transition, that is true. I think the medium to long term, uh, it becomes more complicated because it's not just about energy, it's also about materials as well. So, you know, people talk a lot about metals and minerals and do we have access to them? And I think in, for, for the most part, we do have access to them, to them. They're enough to, to make the transition happen. But the question is at what cost, right? So it's not just about global warming, it's about the biodiversity crisis, it's about uh, land use, it's about uh, plastics, ocean acidification. So is there a way that we can actually consume more and more of these metals and materials and so on? And maybe, yes, solve global warming, but what about all the other ecological crises? And I think that question is, it's more complicated and more up for debate. But in the short run, I think there's just no way to reduce fossil fuel consumption without also reducing consumption. All right. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, although there are two solutions that have been put out there to solve for this, which is obviously growth through innovation, uh, specifically in the energy uh, markets, right? And one is a very old innovation, which is nuclear, right? So people are trying to say, mm-hmm. hey, if you just bring nuclear back into the fold, call it uh, green, you know, you may not be able to call it renewable, but you can at least call it green. And, uh, you know, we could just build an enormous amount of nuclear plants and we have partial solution to keeping the growth going. And number two, obviously, a little bit more complicated uh, to be uh, understating this is the fusion plant tokamak idea yeah. of getting fusion energy on the grid before 2050 and perhaps even in the 30s, uh, which seems to me... Very, very optimistic, but obviously, uh, you know, when you get uh, 100x or at some point, you know, 1,000x, you know, your energy, it does change things. Yeah. 
I, I think those those are true. I think on the nuclear front, conventional nuclear front, I think it makes sense in many ways. I mean, there's a lot of debate about it, obviously, but even for that, the time that we need to build all that nuclear capacity still re requires 10, 15 years of emergency measures. And I think for fusion, it's, it's one of those things where I read on Twitter when the news came out there, this is a technology that's always 10 years away from commercialization. And so, you know, I'm not an expert in that, but I'm just skeptical of, of putting our, sort of the fate of society on the potential of a technology to come forth rather than sort of taking mitigating efforts to protect ourselves in the present. Well, so this brings me to a, a related question, at least it's related for me, because um, this whole transition, right, uh, at least the fossil industry and uh, and even the UN, uh, you know, climate report, they're all adding a third technology to the mix, which is, you know, carbon capture and, and various ways of doing that, both industrial and, and even direct to air. The reason that brings me to the next question is that I, I want to talk about how money is created in the economy. And some people are saying, well, no matter how this carbon capture is going to work, it's going to be a net cost that governments are going to have to cover and it's going to be an expense. And, and for that reason, it could never be innovative and it's just going to be expensive. There's no business model around it. Governments will waste money on this. Another way to think about it is that governments never lose money. They can only create money. Uh, so let's get to the creation of money. And, you know, uh, one way of expanding the economy is to make these very, very important infrastructure investments, this being perhaps the most consequential of this century, if not for the last 500 century, uh, you know, 500 years. And maybe we're not losing money, even though there's not a natural business model around it. We're, you know, we're saving the planet. Plus, you know, governments never really lose money if you are on the right, right side of things. So this is a long introduction to this question. How does money get created in this economy? And why does it at the surface seem so easy for the U.S. to create money and you know, spend a lot of money it presumably doesn't even have? And why is it so hard for your home country like Pakistan or for Argentina? Why do these countries get so deep into a debt crisis, no matter how much money they print or whatever they tell their own commercial banks? So long question, but how does government, I guess, or other how does money get created in our economy and why is it such an unfair way that this gets created so that some countries and actors seem to be able to quite easily create money out of nowhere and other countries structurally struggle to do the same when the tool would appear to be a generic tool? Yeah, I think, well, it's a long question. I, I have to give a, a long answer to that question as well. That's I fair. Think, That's fair. Uh, an important place to start is to recognize what money is and I think the easiest way to think about it is that it's just a claim on resources, right? It's a way for us to buy and sell real things, whether it's you know goods or services or whatever. And that actually is a critical point of understanding because money is just a representation of making a transaction happen. So if you and I want to exchange something, if you have something I want and I have something you want, money is just an enabler of that transaction, right? And so. In that way, money, you know, I would argue is is debt in terms of, you know, I give you something, you now owe me something worth of that value, you know, you are indebted to me, and the representation of that debt is is money. Um, and so the question is then, you know, it's the, the famous uh, quote by Hamming Minsky, which is, 
everyone can create money. The problem is to have it accepted, right? So I can give them a piece of paper, be like, I owe drawing, you know, five hours worth of labor. But the question is, can you give that piece of paper to someone on Stanford campus, be like, yeah, then who this guy owes me this much? No one would accept it, right? So, L- lucky for you, I actually can. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in this case, you can. But, um, and, and you know, I said it's, it's a great. Yeah, point. no, I get that. I understand. The, the reason for that is, con- uh, sorry, yeah. No, I'm just curious. So, so that works in an individual example, but when when yeah. you scale that up to countries, so h- how does that work? Why is it that Pakistan cannot do that? Because presumably, I mean, that's a large economy. There's millions of people. Why would Pakistan be dependent on external creditors and other things to 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 sort of get out of their own uh, situation? You would you would sort of think that any market that is a lot of people, where there a lot of stuff could be produced and that does produce something, could kind of become their own machine and make those decisions and be credible. Why is that not always the case? I think it's not always the case because money is a representation to this example that I also described about power and trust, right? So for money to be accepted by third-party agents where you are not a part of that transaction, people have to trust your credit worthiness to accept that money, for example. Uh, and that is why, uh, in some ways, the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency. The U.S. Is sort of has been the largest economy, it has been the global hegemon, it has been the military power. And so there is both through trust, but also through sort of direct military action, this sense of, okay, we will govern this system, we will design the system, and then, you know, and then that creates a system of network effects. Once everyone starts using something, it's very hard to get off that, even though what you know the news has been saying for the past month. Uh, and that then creates this problem why the US, so governments can create their own currency however they want. It's just an issuing of debt in their own currency. But the reason the US can do it is because, because people are much more willing to accept the US currency. Well, you know, it's just not just the US, it's US, the UK, Japan, et cetera, et cetera. These countries like Pakistan have the issue of they don't have the resources to sort of back that up in many ways. So, for example, Pakistan is a net importer of, of energy and food and things like that, right? Versus countries like the U.S., et cetera, are, are not. Um, and so that gives them a certain sense of, of power over other countries. Um, and then that power gets extended to, to other countries like Japan, which is also an import of energy. But that because of this, because of how the U.S. and its allies have designed the system, the network effects have become so strong that these countries and their currencies have become entrenched. Uh, in how they are used. So the simple question is, why would Turkey um, want to hoard Pakistani rupees? Actually, just yesterday, okay, before yesterday, the Russian, I think, finance minister was saying, we have a billion dollars worth of Indian rupees. We don't know what to do with it. Because who is going to accept Indian rupees except India, for example, right? So then this is the problem with, with uh, developing countries. Yeah, okay. So... Let's say I accept that for developing countries, but but then you have a, a little hole in this theory somewhere, which seem to have affected even U.S. economic and political decision makers and perhaps Europe also over the last couple of years, which is Russia. So here was the theory was right: sanctions against Russia would work because Russia is not, you know, it's like somewhere in between, obviously, a developing country and a fully sort of industrialized country, but 
for some reason, people didn't accept that Russia was a big enough market to have internal trust uh, or, or I guess in external trust at the level that they have shown to have. And then, you know, at least for time being, the sanctions haven't arguably had the effect that most sane observers were really expecting. How do you explain that? Is Russia actually a market? Is it a credible market? Or was it just that they had some very few things like, you know, energy goods that the world couldn't wean themselves off. So it's actually not a case of an anomaly to the model. It's actually just easily explained by the fact that we have still been trading with Russia. Or is Russia actually a, a proof that you could, in a world economy, have a multipolar kind of uh, system where there's more uh, than the U.S. and perhaps China relationship that governs credibility? Yeah, I think the Russia example actually is what sparked sort of me starting to write about this topic in many ways because, again, there's this sort of fictitious understanding of how the world system operates. You know, textbooks of academic model type win that was predicting everything you said would happen to Russia. And But if you think about it from this base layer material perspective, Russia is one of the, is one of the largest exporters of, of energy, raw materials, food, et cetera, right? So you can have whatever democratic theory you want, whatever financial models you want. But the fact of the matter is every country, especially global South countries that, again, are net importers of food and energy, need those resources, right? There's just no question of saying, you know, there's this unjust war. Sure, we are against it, but yeah, we need to feed our people, we need to heat our houses and so on. And that sort of is why, you know, at the start I was saying that it's not determinism, but it is the level at which things operate. And the Russia example shows that, you know, geopolitics and political theory and democracy, everything sort of falls by the wayside when you have issues at the base layer level. When you have food shortages, food inflation, you know, countries like Pakistan, Egypt, 40, 50% food inflation, right? Like that is just absurd. And it's not just directly from Russia because of how our economy the global economy is structured, there are all these cascading impacts, second, third, fourth order impacts that affect the you know, energy becomes expensive, everything else becomes expensive, becomes an inflationary cycle, then you are you don't have enough dollars and you also have a debt crisis on top of that. It just becomes a complex, you know, a buggy crisis in many ways. Hmm. Um, and so the Russia example, again, shows that to actually understand how things work and what will happen, you have to look at the base layer of society. Uh, beyond sort of the academic models that we have been using thus far. Is that also how you explain the U.S.-China relationship in geopolitics? Because, you know, the simplistic understanding is, uh, okay, there's this new political situation where China is asserting themselves and they have kind of deserved it. So now we're watching it and, you know, eventually they will prove to everybody that they're sort of a same size, you know, economy and, and other things, but but it's mostly a political perception game. And you're saying, no, it's actually, I guess, my guess, related to China's manufacturing base, which yeah. has been surprisingly um, resilient, I guess, even against, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff that have happened lately, you know, from COVID to other things. So how do you read this China story? Yeah, I think the U.S.-China thing is just quite funny at, at many levels. I think 
two, three years ago, the narrative was, oh, the China owns the U.S. because China owns these two, three, whatever trillion dollars of U.S. treasuries. You know, the U.S. borrows from China, goes spend, and there's a terrible problem. And that's obviously completely false because China holds U.S. dollars. The U.S. issues U.S. dollars. It should be quite evident about who holds the power in those situations. China needs the U.S., not vice versa. Now it's all about, okay, when you decouple from China, you know, we have to do our own thing. And that is the other side of not recognizing the fact that just in basic material terms, China has anything from 30 to 90% control of most of the supply chains for copper, lithium, nickel, rare earth metals, everything that goes into you know, laptops, computers, solar panels, EVs, everything, right? So how exactly are you going to decouple from that? Um, you can, you know, the U.S. is trying to build its own domestic capacity, but that's expensive, it takes time, you know, you have to build industrial clusters, uh, you have to have skilled labor, it would be more expensive because labor in China is cheaper, they also have a 20, 30 year, sort of, uh, they've been ahead in that market for 20, 30 years, so, you know, what would happen in the interim? Things would become more expensive, for example, and even and that's assuming this happens. You know, I would be skeptical of can and will this even happen because all the intermediary players like, like Germany, France, wherever, you've seen how they've been, you know, trying to test the waters on both sides and are reluctant to join this US effort because of how dependent their economies are on Chinese manufacturing and, and exports. So um Timer, this leads me to another question for you, which is I mean, is it just capital then that's fictitious or is it actually the entire ideology around geopolitics that has been fictitious because it's been basically based on this idea layer that, you know, ideas are the ones that drive the global logic. And you're kind of saying, um, no, it is this material layer. And uh, if that's the case... What are some of your predictions on, on you know, where this is going to go? Because if if it's not even just capital that is fictitious and creating all these challenges for us, if it truly is this misunderstanding about how our geopolitical system even works, where where can that go? Yeah, I think the the a quote that I saw that represents this is that in the battle between narratives and physics, physics eventually always wins. Uh, and I think that is a good way of summarizing the fact that essentially people can say and talk about and idea about so many things, but when push comes to shove, action depends on can you feed people, are they warm, do they have enough to eat, travel, etc. And all of those are material things. And I think the course of history shows us that when those crises, crises emerge, when there's food scarcity, energy scarcity, so on, people are extremely willing to give up on whatever political ideology or systems they have in order to do what it takes to protect themselves or to even develop and grow. Uh, you know, I think the India India has been quite, actually quite uh, bleeding about this over the past couple of years, but they've been saying, yeah, like, sure, this Russian invasion is unjust, but if we can get cheap coal and gas and food from Russia to feed and you know warm our people, why would we not do that, right? Mm. Um, and so I think there's this duality where there is this huge material challenge where so much of the world is still living in abject poverty, right? 
without electricity, without food, etc. They are being hammered by ecological crises on top of everything. Uh, and you know, now they're being hammered by financial crises and inflation as well. That versus this commitment to some idea, some political cause, I think I would say the first will always win or drive the second. And I think we should be quite careful about not addressing those material challenges before they become systemic issues. Yeah, okay. But so then I'm I'm uh, uh, wanting then to ask a second question, which is, you know, a simplistic reading of what you're saying would be, okay, the global South is doomed because they are stuck in this logic where they don't have enough access to material resources. And when you're saying even the ideological uh, even if the global north ideologically wanted to protect the global south, fix the ecological problems, do repayments, or or morally, in, you know, invest in those countries, that wouldn't be enough. But there's a counter narrative there that sort of says resilience matters too. Um, so I, I wonder what is your thinking on this because the global south has one advantage that I guess the global north does not have, and that is it has had to deal with resource constraints over a very, very long time. That has to count for something in a situation where clearly if the global north has to change fast, their consumption patterns, you know, comparatively have to change much more than the global south consumption patterns with perhaps the exception of the elites in the global south, which, you know, I don't know. They'll have to transition somehow. But uh, what do you think of that? This idea of of a greater resilience in the South. Yeah, I think there are two answers to that question. Um, yes and no. I think the yes part is that because there are these breakages in the system, this is an opportunity for global South countries to sort of force their way into a better position. Because many of these global South countries actually are the the global providers of of labor of resources, natural resources, uh, you know, all, all the whole contest between the West and China for sort of nickel and cobalt and lithium in South America and Africa represents this. And, you know, the talks between Brazil, Chile, Indonesia to have this like OPEC-style uh, material cartel is a representation of they can use that natural advantage they have to have more power in the system. Um, but I would say no, because... Uh, you know, when there's an economic crisis, for, say in the U.S., you know, people stop flying less, people don't go out as much, and so on and so forth. I mean, the the, the working class opposite suffers a lot more, especially in the U.S., but social safety acts are quite weak. But, you know, the, the level of, the hit is a different level versus when that happens in Pakistan, you know, huge percentage points of people fall under the power line. People have to go hungry, people... I don't have enough to like stay cool in very hot summers, for example. So I think in that way, the global South is a lot more susceptible to to economic shocks or, or systemic shocks in general, because the global North still, like Germany, for example, last year, when the Russian gas supply stopped, they were able to just bring so much money and outbid Pakistan, Bangladesh, for example, by three, four X for natural gas, and they were able to survive the winter, versus Pakistan and Bangladesh then suffered, right? Mm. So 
No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I, I, I'm by no means saying the global south will, you know, will rise and, uh, you, you know, because of all these. But I think it, it does seem to me that it is a complicated picture and it's not as simple, just like it's not as simple as to say, you know, democracy rules the world. It's also not as simple as to say the people who have resources will forever have those resources, right? It, it is yeah. about how you adapt at, at any level. Um well, a- anyway, I wanted maybe just to, to close with this question because you're you're a young guy with a lot of exciting sort of sources and you're sourcing so much information for your great newsletter and you do research for me and for other people. Where do you go when you want inspiration? You know, what podcasts, what books, what, you know, so you've obviously been at Stanford, you're like, you know, eating up all, all that's going on around you, but... Where do you go? You're a knowledge hound. Uh, where are the best places? I think the controversial answer to that question is uh, Twitter. <laughs> Twitter is a is a great place, but I mean, now it's less effective. But before the takeover, it was just this wonderful place where you find experts on so many topics, just engaging, doing these discussions, like giving their time and explaining the you know work they've done or the experience they've had in industry and. I've honestly, most of the introductions I've had to the things I've spoken about in terms of concepts and people has been through Twitter. Uh, that I found podcasts and people's newsletters and books, et cetera, through that. Uh, I've met people in real life <laughs> through Twitter conversations uh, over so many years. And I think that is just a wonderful place. If you know how to use it properly, I think it's a wonderful place to I find that somewhat paradoxical. So I'm glad you said you actually then read those books and go to those podcasts because it seems to me that, uh, you know, what started out with uh, 140 characters and now is a bit, a bit longer, it's uh, not a format that you can, that can't be your be all end all, right? But you're saying it's, uh, it's this very good layer for, for starting a discussion or for discovering topics. But then I'm assuming you still do read some books and, and, and do, do listen to a full hour of a, of a podcast uh, uh, now and then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's just one of those ways to like, introduce new people. It's a way of like, taking down traditional gatekeeping through media or academia. It just makes it easier to access people. So, you know, I think people like Agam Tools, who has a newsletter, is having a great job of talking about the body crisis and all these different things that we've spoken about. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think they're just, it depends on the topic. So yeah. on finance, geek growth, there are lots of new exciting works coming out. And um, yeah, I think it's just, uh, it's just it's to find them and also just speak to the authors. So many people are just willing to engage about their works on Twitter. You can directly engage with them and that makes it a lot more sort of uh, insightful. All right, so so let me ask my absolutely last question. We haven't talked so much about degrowth as a principle, and it's, it seems to be such an important paradigm going forward. Not that it necessarily is the paradigm, but but if it is, it, it, you know, certainly we should discuss it more. And if it, even if it isn't, it is such a complicated paradigm to fully digest. What is your quick take on what degrowth is? I think my quick take on it is breaking this sort of ideological dogma that we have about the fact that to be happier, we need to consume more. And the fact that forget the climate crisis and everything else, I think it's quite obvious that we consume a lot more than every previous generation. And yet, arguably, we are not happier in so many ways. 
I think breaking that link is the primary objective. And then that has all sorts of like cultural, economic, energy impacts about the fact that do we need to have all this conspicuous consumption to be better off? Um, and once we break that, then we can bring in these constraints about you know, the energy, biophysical constraints that, okay, we have to live in certain boundaries. And so how do we live with those boundaries in a way that does not leave people um, unhappy or poor or outside the system? And so then that becomes a question of redistribution or social organization, which I think is completely up for debate. And I don't think there's a sort of a system that one has an answer for. But at least second, I think degrowth is a way of changing the way how the question is asked in the first place. And I think just doing that is success in and of itself in how we frame the question and what constraints we put on ourselves when we answer that question. Do you have any idea about the timeline within which such a shift would either have to happen or by which time, if it, I guess if it doesn't happen, something other that's bad would happen? Yeah, it's a tough one. Depends on what news I've read that that day. But I think, I mean, I, I would say it's closer than people think. I would say a decade or two is, is the more realistic outcome. I think people talk about 2050, the next century, whatever. But I think, you know, shocks have a way of just cascading, just like rippling through the system a lot faster than people recognize. Things can go, go, go down very fast. Uh, in so many ways, especially when things are already so on the edge in so many ways, you know, socially, politically, financially, uh, materially, etc. Uh, I think people underestimate how quickly things can just get out of hand. Hmm. Well, in order for people to get a better grasp on that, they'll have to wait for our paper, don't they, Timer? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's been fantastic speaking with you. It, it's... Uh, such a pleasure when a friendship that started as you know you and I were introduced and and are working together uh, you know at Stanford, but when it turns into this kind of intellectual friendship as well. So I, I thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, congratulations on Fictitious Capital, the Substack uh, newsletter. Feel free to come back anytime, and uh, you know I just wish you so much uh, good luck with w whatever it is that you want to do uh, with all these exciting thoughts. No, thank you so much for having me on. And I must say, I've been quite inspired by looking at the range of topics that your work covers and how you're able to sort of bring them, bring them together into one framework. And I think that is the, the, the type of thinking that we need to be able to deal with these, with the body crisis, essentially. So thank you for doing that as well. Well, this won't be our last conversation. Uh, timer, thank you so much. Futurist scholar and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.